Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. The Cabinet has delayed signing off on the National Maternity Hospital by two weeks, despite the Taoiseach saying today he was genuinely satisfied that safeguards were in place to allow the development of a new National Maternity Hospital in Dublin to proceed. So the the protections are there for the new maternity hospital. There are strong protections, and I think we need to have perspective and balance in all of this. Calls for the Russian ambassador to Ireland to be expelled following a TV report which aired in Russia over the weekend showing mocked up footage of Ireland being destroyed in the event of a Russian strike on Britain. It is disturbing. It's on state television in Russia and uh, as I said with the presenter who's seen as close to to the government and in what world could that be seen as appropriate? And later, former Sinn Féin TD, Violet Ann Wynne, on why she left Sinn Féin. Yeah, well, I suppose the reason why I, I really left was because um, of the interactions that I was having with the organisation and the administration of the party. Do get in touch on Twitter with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight VMTV. First tonight, the issue of the National Maternity Hospital moving to the St Vincent's campus will come before ministers in two weeks' time after the Cabinet held off giving a green light to the proposal this evening. Well, our political correspondent, Gavin Riley, joins me now. Gavin, I think everybody expected that the Cabinet were going to sign off on this. Uh, The Taoiseach certainly seemed to indicate it earlier today. So what happened? It was certainly the official proposal that was going to Cabinet today, Kira, was to sign off on these arrangements. What we've seen in the last couple of hours is a little bit of an attempt to redefine what the government was going to do. We're now talking about how the government is going to bring this back in two weeks and the government is hoping that it will get signature of all of this in a fortnight. Make no bones about it. The official plan today was to get Cabinet sign off in principle for this arrangement at today's meeting. And that was certainly what the coalition leaders expected to get. That is why we had Micheál Martin giving the clip which you played in the introduction where he was saying that he genuinely had no more fears about this and it was time to get on and build the hospital. What we understand is that behind closed doors, some ministers felt a little bit bounced into all of this, particularly in light of the feedback that there's been on the ground and some of the social media campaigns that have emerged in the last couple of days. Specifically, the Green Party minister, the Culture Minister, Catherine Martin, expressed serious unease about the arrangements and the way that they had been uh, portrayed very quickly, about the fact that all of the documentation had not been published since the Religious Sisters of Charity divested themselves of the Vincent's Hold 
holding group in the last couple of days. And there was also some concern too raised, we understand, by the Justice Minister, Helen McEntee, who had a little concern about the lack of transparency for some of the documentation which surrounds all of this and how it had not been put out in the ether. All of which has resulted then in the decision which is being portrayed as something proactive by government, which has to be seen as a reactive move, to publish all of those documents which have been published on the HSE website inside the last 15 or 20 minutes, and for Stephen Donnelly to himself go before the Oireachtas Health Committee to answer questions around all of this in an attempt to try and put paid to some more the government is considering as misinformation what you might otherwise consider as maybe some misunderstandings, but for Stephen Donnelly to go to the committee to try and explain his case and to try and really underline why all of this is necessary with the then hope that the political storm has passed in two weeks' time for the Cabinet to sign off on it then. And Gavin, you're coming to us live from the Department of Health this evening because there was this impromptu press conference. Uh, tell me, who was there and what did they have to say? We had a whole uh, gamut of people who were speaking at this uh, press conference this evening, including the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, the current master of the Hollis Street Maternity Hospital, Shane Higgins, his predecessor, Rona Mahoney, and a se series of senior other figures, including heads of estates, all of which was ostensibly, one suspects, billed as something of a victory party, that they planned all of this as if there was going to be an official sign-off by Cabinet on these arrangements and that they were going to explain to us why this was all such good news. Instead, what we had had a little bit of an air of crisis communications where we had speaker after speaker not alone talking about the governance arrangements, but also speaking about why it was so important for this new hospital to be delivered in the first place. And Rona Mahoney made what seemed like a fairly compelling case around that line. Every procedure that is permissible under Irish law will be performed at the new maternity hospital on Vincent's campus. That includes, as the Minister said, termination of pregnancy, the provision of contraception, tubal ligation, assisted reproduction. Not only will services not be restricted, but they will be greatly enhanced because we will now be delivering care on a campus that offers some of the most sophisticated medical, surgical and diagnostic care in the country. Services will be hugely advanced for women. We must not let this project fall apart because of misinformation. In other news this evening, um, the US Supreme Court has confirmed that a draft ruling indicating the court may overturn the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that legalised abortion nationwide was authentic. President Joe Biden vowed to try to protect abortion rights. Well, joining me now for more on this is Washington correspondent Simon Mark. Simon, Simon, nice to speak to you uh, this evening. Um, this was a draft opinion uh, coming from the Supreme Court looking at, uh, among other things, Roe and Wade. Um, if it is indeed overturned, what will the implications of that be? Well, the implications will be that abortion will be stripped of its constitutional protections. Roe versus Wade is that landmark 1973 ruling that essentially declared abortion legal from coast to coast across the United States. And for decades, Republicans have been chipping away at it, hoping to get it overturned. As soon as they ended up with six of the nine Supreme Court seats, thanks in large measure to former President Donald Trump, 
Trump, who had the opportunity uh, to uh, nominate uh, three Supreme Court justices during his presidency. The writing was very much on the wall uh, for Roe versus Wade. Now it seems apparent from this draft ruling it will be overturned, which means not that abortion becomes illegal in the United States, but that each of America's individual 50 states will get to make their own decisions about their own rules and laws on their own territory. So you're going to end up essentially with two Americas, uh, states largely to the north where abortion will remain unrestricted and legal and states largely to the south where abortion will be heavily restricted and in some cases completely outlawed. A patchwork quilt of different arrangements with enormous implications uh, for women in America depending on where they live. And there's been protests across America all day about the potential implications of this. Um, what exactly has President Biden said to those protesters? Well, President Biden is pledging to take action to try and get uh, abortion rights legislation passed by the United States Senate because there is no national federal law protecting the right to abortion. Now, that is a very, very high bar for the president to uh, wander down and for the president to aim for, given that the Senate is split 50-50 between Republicans and Democrats. I mean, it seems like it's a non-starter. And even if he was able to thread that particular needle, the US Supreme Court would still be able to review that law if it ended up on the statute books. What's really taking place here is uh, Democrat grassroots supporters absolutely galvanized by this extraordinary leaked document out of the Supreme uh, Court, uh, suddenly realizing that the midterm elections are just six months away, critical in determining which party is going to control both houses uh, of Congress. And Democrats are hoping that this will persuade grassroots voters that even though they might not care very much for President Biden, they now realize that reproductive rights are going to be on the ballot this November. Equally, this is a landmark for Republican grassroots supporters, galvanized as they will be by the notion that within weeks they may have achieved their goal of overturning Roe versus Wade. So it galvanizes supporters on both sides of the political aisle here. All right, Simon Marks, we're going to leave it there, uh, but thank you for that update. Well, joining me now to discuss more on the National Maternity Hospital is the former master of the National Maternity Hospital, Dr Peter Boylan, Minister of State for Local Government and Planning, Peter Burke, and broadcaster and journalist, Wendy Grace. Uh, you're all very welcome to uh, the programme. Peter Burke, I'm going to start with you because I think this delay has certainly come as a surprise to people, given the fact that the Taoiseach said this evening that he was genuinely satisfied that safeguards were in place to protect clinical autonomy. And all day we've heard, look, this is a matter of hitting the green light. This is going to go ahead. So what has happened? Well, I have no doubt that he is <clears throat> satisfied, but I think it's important that you know, we've heard uh, public voices who have spoken up uh, and said that they still have genuine concerns and obviously Peter uh, is one of those and I think uh, Peter and people like him have brought a huge amount of value into public discourse over the last number of years in healthcare matters. So I think it's important that we 
publish all the documentation, go forward to the Oireachtas Health Committee, where the Minister will be in attendance, and answer any questions, especially in relation to the new documentation and the licensing agreements that have now been published this evening. But I have no doubt there's two things that do stand out in my mind. In the first instance, on the 23rd of February, the letter that was issued from those at the coalface serving in the National Maternity Hospital clinician staff who are very, very clear that this project must go ahead and they are absolutely convinced that the mechanism that's employed under the current structure is fit for purpose. And also, secondly, I do know throughout the country, if you look at from Tala Hospital, which is at least from uh, the Minister for Health, you have St. James's from the HSE, right around the country you have many primary care centres that are leased from very different landlords. That does not mean that landlords will have a say in the procedures that are carried out by uh, those GPs, their general practitioners, they don't. So once the mechanism is correct and that is legally sound, and that's important, the government has went through the checks on that. But as a wider issue, I think it is important we bring people with us. So, so I, that's I'd what the welcome next two, the two weeks, weeks are about, is Absolutely, it? I welcome the two weeks in that regard, yeah. And is it your <coughs> understanding then that at the end of these two weeks there will be another cabinet meeting and that'll be it? It's uh, you know, literally a case of rubber stamping these plans. That's my understanding and as I said Kira, there's new documentation that's published tonight in relation to the licensing agreement where there are additional mechanisms that obviously will safeguard the state's interest to ensure that women will get these services. Like this is a hospital which will replace the old Nightingale wards where you have 14 patients which are almost sharing facilities. You're going to have single rooms, five operating theatres and which is co-located which really is bringing uh, medicine into a proper area where clinicians can walk down the corridor instead of trying to transport patients from hospital to hospital. Um, Dr Peter Boylan, you sent a letter um, to the Taoiseach, um, we read about that yesterday, requesting Cabinet to hold off taking this decision. <clears throat> They've obviously done that now, I'm sure you welcome that decision. Why do you still have concerns, given the fact that this evening we see so many former masters of Hollis Street, I'm sure old colleagues of yours, who yeah. say this needs to go ahead, this is good for women and uh, Irish babies? The problem started when Dr Mahoney, the, one of my predecessors uh, as former master, and uh, Nicholas Cairns, the chairman of the board at the time, wrote to Kieran Mulvey saying that they were happy that the Sisters of Charity would own the hospital. That's when all this problem started. If you fast forward to now, the situation is that the successor organisation to the Sisters of Charity, St Vincent's Holdings, which is a Vatican-approved private company, whose shareholders are committed publicly to upholding the values and vision of the Sisters of Charity, which are undoubtedly Catholic. So we have a situation now where the hospital, the National Maternity Hospital, is going to be owned by the successor organisation to the Sisters of Charity, which is a Vatican-approved private company. Um, well, a spokesperson though for that hospital said that the values that you talk about, the values are human dignity, compassion, justice, quality and advocacy, they're not owned by any secular or religious organisation, they're appropriate for any organisation providing healthcare. Those are the values that they're going to be upholding. I think you have to accept that the Sisters of Charity uphold all of those values and they've done tremendous work over the years, but their values are undoubtedly Catholic. We're being asked to believe that a Vatican approved private company whose shareholders are committed to upholding these Catholic values will own the new National Maternity Hospital operating company and that they will not, that they will allow the Vatican has permitted them to allow uh, procedures which are directly contrary to Catholic teaching. And so do you, you disagree then with many of your former colleagues who say whatever is carried out in Hollis Street today will be carried out in the new National Maternity Hospital. Whatever is legal in Ireland will be legal there too. There are guarantees. 
copper fastened guarantees of that. You don't accept that still. The current structure of Hollow Street and its governance and so on works extremely well and all procedures are available and are performed in the National Maternity Hospital. The proposal is that that structure be completely dissolved and incorporated in a new company, NMHDAC, which will be owned by St Vincent's. Why, if the hospital is independent, going to be independent, mm. does it have to be owned by a Vatican-approved private company? Is that That's not because it's going to be co-located with St Vincent's Hospital at the moment? If it's co-located, it doesn't have to be owned by St Vincent's. The Children's Hospital is not going to be owned by St James's. There's many, many examples all around the world of proper co-location, not integration of corporate and clinical governance, which is what St Vincent's have freely talked about in all of their publications, their annual reports and so on. So it's not actually, the current structure is not proper co-location. If it's to be independent, it should not be owned by another entity. It should be owned under the current governance structure and ownership structure, which works in women's interests. There um, are too many questions around this. Wendy, look, we have waited for this hospital for a long time. I know you are familiar with the workings of Hollis Street and we've heard the Taoiseach saying today, look, it is not fit for purpose. Are you glad that this has been delayed again for another fortnight and that these documents will be published and the legal framework of this uh, new hospital will be scrutinised further? Do you think that's a positive thing for the women of Ireland? Well, I think probably most women are saying this has been going on for 10 years. What's another two weeks, but no more after that? I've had three children in the National Maternity Hospital, one in the last year. I cannot fault the care that I received there from the midwives, the doctors, everything, but it does need upgrading. We, this project does need to happen. I think a sad consequence in all of these, these discussions is, is that the religious sisters are often demonised and for handing over land that's worth hundreds of millions of euro, what do they get? Instead of thanks, they get vitriol. And we have to bring it back to the founding of this hospital. Sister Mary Aikenhead, who founded it in 1853, why, why was that started? It was a Christian response to creating hospitals in the first place, yet all we're getting is vitriolic attacks. I think it's always... You wouldn't have any concerns then, is that what you're saying, if the Sisters of Charity were involved or if the board had any sort of religious ethos? You've no issue with I that. I actually think it should be totally separate. I think that we're probably gone too far down the road now. We are gone too far down the road, but I think that the hospital should have been built on state land. Um, obviously, that's not the situation we're in now. However, I think it's important to, to highlight the frustration probably of a lot of women who are planning on having babies in the future, that we're in a situation now where you could argue that a lot of the political hot air around this, I think, is dishonest. It's dishonest around creating problems that I believe don't exist. It's been made clear by the clinicians involved, by the sisters themselves, that there is going to be no involvement uh, whatsoever. So we have this situation where, for some who seem to have an obsession with abortion provision, that's actually impeding the progress of a maternity hospital that for most women and people across the country, what are they concerned Obsession with? is a very strong word, isn't it, Mandy? Is it an obsession or is it just an obsession uh, with women being protected in this country? Well, that's, there's two separate issues because I believe women and babies can be protected without abortion provisions. That's a separate issue. It's that, you know, we have a situation where what do most people want in this, in this country for a maternity hospital? They want a place that's safe, modern. Um, and also, you know, the concern is about ethos, right? What, this kind of phasmagorical idea that in 200 years' time the nuns, are, the nuns are going to come back from the grave in some sort of Da Vinci Code idea and, you know, impact the ethos. But we're not actually talking about what the okay. new ethos of the maternity hospital Peter should Boylan, be. I want to let oh. you back in there. Are you panicking about something that inevitably is never going to happen? No, not at all. 
My concern relates around the ownership. As I keep saying, it's a Vatican-approved uh, private company whose shareholders are committed and so on to upholding Catholic values. That is going to inevitably create conflict uh, at board level if the, and at hospital level if the board of the NMH wants to provide these procedures, but the representatives from St. Vincent's don't because they're committed to upholding Catholic values. But isn't, aren't there three public interest members on the board? Don't the, does, doesn't the board um, not have a majority of those from St. Vincent's Hospital Group on it? So there's no, necess there's no reason what, why what? they should get to dictate um, the board's point of view. So you're going to have three Hollow Street people possibly who want something to happen, three Vincent's people who want exactly the opposite to happen, and three other people who are caught in the middle. And then you're going to have this wonderful golden share. So is the Minister for Health going to make decisions about what services are provided? The Minister couldn't even get women to, to uh, the hospitals to allow their partners in for birth during the, during the pandemic and so on. So the Minister cannot dictate what happens in a particular hospital. But, but, it uh, sorry, I just want to let Peter Burke back in again. P Peter, um, Wendy said there there's a lot of misinformation uh, around the structures of this new hospital. Do you agree with that, that there is? Yeah, well, I don't think you could really classify it as misinformation. Maybe more information should have been in the public domain and that's what causes concern with citizens and with experts alike. So now that we have this two-week period where we will have the information out there, the legal agreements have been published and people will be able to go through them and they will be stress-tested stress in their Octus Committee. But I would say like this is a 299-year lease. Uh, essentially, that's way in excess of the functional life of the hospital. The board Does has that not reassure you, Peter? six directors oh, it's, it's three which are independent. It's three times worse than the original because it puts it away for 300 years effectively into the hands of a company which is Vatican approved. But we don't, if you, if you look at the structure of that company, that company, it's a company limited by guarantee and the structure of guarantee companies is they have trustees as opposed to directors. And essentially where you have the mechanism now whereby six of those will be outside of the St Vincent's realm. And bear in mind to appoint the three that are in the St Vincent's realm, they have to consult with the uh, Royal College of Surgeons, uh, also other bodies like Chartered Accountants Ireland. There's loads of bodies they have to consult with. So at least six of the nine will be independent, to be fair. And I don't think you can have a real issue uh, with that. Well, <laughs> What, one of those bodies is St Vincent's healthcare group that they have to consult with. So you'll have the ridiculous position of the CEO of St Vincent's, who is employed by St Vincent's healthcare group, can approve the appointment of a director to that company. Okay, so just, it, it's just, it's bonkers. Uh, I just want to point, put a point to Peter Burke. Yeah. Um, I know you have been obviously um, speaking out against this for a long time, Peter Boylan, but if we look at the HSE board, there were also um, two people on that who uh, voiced their concerns about the governance issues uh, around this new hospital, including uh, Dr Sarah McLaughlin, who's a patient advocate, and the deputy chair, Professor Deirdre Madden. Are you not concerned, Peter Burke, at their concerns? Well, in politics, you have to weigh up the evidence that's before you. I hear two individuals who did raise concerns. On the other hand, I have a letter signed by 52 clinicians who work in the National Maternity Hospital. I also have uh, um, Professor Higgins, who was on the news at one day, very robustly putting forward that there is absolutely no mechanism to change the services that are delivered to the hospital. And also you have the former... Uh, 
Master Rona Mahoney also on very, very clearly, and we saw the clip there, how robust she was in terms of enhancing medical care for women. So when you're in politics, you have to, number one, stress test the legal documentation. The Attorney General and the government will have done that. Now it's offering to consult with the Oireachtas Committee and thereby the public in terms of seeing the transparent nature of the documentation. But decisions have to be made. And on balance, if we believe the legal structure is sound and that there is no mechanism to try and alter what isn't provided for under the law of the land, well then it should go ahead. Yeah, one of the things actually um, that's just coming to light this evening as part of this licence agreement is an option agreement, Wendy, uh, that there's an option to buy St Vincent's Holding Group, um, buy them out of the site if they breach their duties and that the HSE does have that option. Does that not reassure you and perhaps you too, Peter? Uh, yeah, and I look, the statement that the Religious Sisters have made said, we will have no role in the future of the new independent charity, St Vincent's Healthcare Group, St Vincent's Holding or the new National Maternity Hospital. I don't know what more reassurance people need. The frustration is it's, it's impeding the progress of, for the most part, what people want is, you know, a top class maternity hospital. However, I think it's very naive to think just because there isn't a religious ethos that there will be no ethos. Of course, there will be a new ethos. So why are we not discussing what that ethos is going to be? One of the main concerns at the moment is around the provision of abortion. We have a situation at the moment where 90% of doctors don't want to provide abortion in this country at the moment. And what's the reason behind that? Perhaps okay. it's conscient conscientious objection. Okay, because well, they, we want to just so, stick to the issue but in other National words, there will, be, there will be another ethos. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So just because there's no religious ethos doesn't mean there won't be a new ethos. So why are we not talking about what that will look like? What sort of a maternity hospital will we create? All right. Instead, we're focusing on a situation that will never occur. The reality is the religious sisters haven't had any hand after part of control in ethos-related issues in St. Vincent's for a long time. And I think to pretend Peter, that That's absolutely correct, but they still will not perform uh, sterilisations of women on request for family planning purposes. They will certainly not provide terminations under the, under the uh, auspices of the 2018 Act following repeal of the 8th. 
But so, what we're being told repeatedly by uh, those working within Hull Street at the moment is that that will be allowed in the new National Maternity Hospital, even if it is on that site. And the, you quoted Peter, the, the former master, Rona Mahoney, but she was the one who was very happy for the Sisters of Charity. Okay, to but they're the not involved. So. I think we accept they're not involved anymore, don't we? No, they're not involved. Their successor organisation, the Vatican approved private company whose shareholders are committed to upholding their Catholic values, yeah. now own. But, uh, what but just want to put, I just want to put to you because um, obviously they're not here this evening, but the Vincent's Holdings. Um, uh, group have put out a statement this evening and they said any suggestion that there is something murky about the manner in which it has been incorporated is disingenuous and it continues a campaign of scaremongering and misinformation being spread about our group. Is that what you're doing at this point, do you think? No, I think they could certainly clarify matters and, and help people to understand what exactly has happened if they published all of the correspondence between the Vatican, the Sisters of Charity, Vincent's Healthcare Group and the bishops, because that's the background. The permission letter from the Vatican was very brief, but it did say they had to, uh, that it was in, in uh, compliance with the letter of application from St. Vincent's and so on. So we need to see all that correspondence to see what exactly. We're being asked to, to approve or to believe that the Vatican have approved the building of a hospital in which abortion and so on will take place. All right. Well, no hospital in the world does that. You believe we're going to get that clarity over the next fortnight, Peter? Absolutely. And the state hasn't okay. got to invest a billion euro on a project that it hasn't got a compliance that will okay. be operated under the law of the land. All right, look, uh, my thanks to uh, Dr. Peter Boylan and Wendy Grace. Uh, Peter Burke will be staying with me after the break. Euro News correspondent Shona Murray will have the very latest on further EU sanctions against Russia. Do stay with us. Welcome back. Well, the European Union will impose new sanctions on Russia for waging war against the Ukraine, targeting the Russian oil industry, more Russian banks and those responsible for disinformation, the EU's top diplomat has said. Well, a little earlier, I spoke to Euronews Europe correspondent Shona Murray about the sanctions. Well, tomorrow we'll hear the full details from Ursula von der Leyen, who's speaking to the European Parliament here in Strasbourg. She'll announce the details. In the meantime, you'll also have EU member states brewing over the Commission's proposals because the Commission only uh, really confirmed its proposals this evening. Um, what we do know is the focus, the main focus of this sixth pa sanctions package is, of course, an oil embargo to permanently phase out Russian oil from the European Union. Um, it'll happen over several months. We saw with the coal embargo, for example, to f it would take four months to phase out permanently Russian coal. Oil is obviously a much bigger deal. The EU traditionally takes in about 27% of its Russia, of its oil from Russia. Some countries, much more. Germany was up to 40% and so on. So this is a big deal. And there will also be special dispensations for two countries, Slovakia and Hungary, which solely rely on Russian oil. So they will have a little bit longer periods to phase out the use of Russian oil. But it is a watershed moment because it's something that, you know, a couple of months ago, even amid the heinous war crimes being committed by Russia, many member states resisted because of the impact that uh, oil sanctions have on their economies. And what we've seen over the past few weeks is Germany reducing its vulnerabilities to Russia and oil to 12% from around 40% in a very short space of time. So the feeling is, and we heard from the German uh, minister this week in Brussels saying that Germany is now ready for it 
um, economically, politically and from a societal point of view. So is there a timeline then, Shona, for banning uh, oil imports outright? Yeah, there is. And we don't know the full detail of how many months that will be, but several months. I mean, by the end of the year, you'll have all EU 27 member states. That's the feeling. And then for the rest of the EU, there'll probably be a proposal of a few months, four or five months. But remember, these are proposals from the Commission. So the member states, the 27 countries are the ones that actually have to agree whether they support these proposals or not. And even the fifth round of sanctions took about uh, 48 hours to agree. This is much more fundamental. So you will have a lot of to uh, and fro between the, uh, the countries looking for uh, various changes to uh, what is being proposed on the table. I know though, from an Irish point of view, Ireland would like to go as strong as possible. It doesn't have the same sort of reliance on Russian uh, fossil fuels, none from oil and gas. And then you have other countries like Poland and the Baltic countries who want to go much further and cut off gas completely. Poland and Bulgaria are two countries that had their gas suspended by Russia last week. And this is obviously a significant blow to Russia because it's a significant revenue stream. How do we expect or how does uh, Europe expect uh, Russia to respond? It's a really important question. Obviously, nobody knows the answer to it because um, there had been analysts who have said that they sh the EU maybe shouldn't go ahead with an oil embargo per se and just apply heavy tariffs on the importation of Russian oil because Putin may decide to just cut off the gas uh, because obviously gas is, is, is a huge important, hugely important to the EU. So that could happen. And we heard from uh, the commissioner this week uh, in charge of energy, Kadri Simpson, who said that all EU member states should prepare for full disruption um, of uh, Russian gas, and we saw what Putin did last week, cut off the gas from Bulgaria and Poland. Now, those are two countries who said that they weren't going to renew their gas from contracts, and Putin said he was doing it because they wouldn't give in to new demands for paying in rubles. But we, it remains to be seen. Now, obviously, though, Kerry, you have to remember that this the whole point of this is that you cut and paralyze the Russian economy. Uh, revenue from fossil fuels exportation for Russia is huge, and the EU is accelerating um, its reliance on Russian uh, fossil fuels. Russia will no longer be a player for the European Union. It will really damage its economy going into the long term. Okay, Shona Murray, uh, thank you for taking the time to speak to us this evening. We won't have to leave it there. Well, still here in studio is Minister of State for Local Government and Planning, Peter Burke, and joining us via Skype is CEO of Fuel Ireland, Kevin McPartland. Kevin, I want to come to you uh, first of all and pick up on something that um, Shona said. If Russia itself were to decide to stop supplying oil to Europe as part of its response to this embargo, would that have any impact uh, here in Ireland? Well, if, if I may, Kira, I might answer that in, in two parts and say, first of all, in Ireland, even before the invasion of Ukraine, we actually uh, imported very, very little fuel from, from Russia, either in the form of refined diesel or in crude that was, that was refined here uh, in Ireland. So we have a very, very low level of reliance on, on Russian oil even before this. Since the invasion of Ukraine, uh, oil companies have been putting more and more distance between themselves and Russia. They've been unwinding contracts with Russian suppliers. So I think there is literally if any Russian oil coming into, into Ireland now. Now, so in, in that sense, it won't affect us terribly badly at all if, if there were to be that immediate sort of total ban on Russian energy coming into Ireland. However, Europe as a whole has a very heavy reliance on Russia and for its energy. And if that were to be disrupted, you have to wonder what that will do to the 
overall market. And that's why it's really important that we're planning, just as Commissioner Simpson advised and shown his report there, that all countries prepare for that absolute disruption. And we're doing that. We've been doing that over the last couple of months with government and with the National Oil Reserves Agency. And that's one thing that we need to say as well. We do have this strategic reserve, which the state holds. Uh, we were told last week it's about 85 days at current levels of uh, petrol, diesel and home heating oil. So we're in a pretty good space. We shouldn't be too worried. Can we access those national oil reserves quite easily? Well, uh, the, the the storage of those is a matter for the National Oil Reserves Agency itself. And, 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 and uh, you know, that, that's it's publicly available. We do want to make sure that all of the fuel that we may need in the worst case scenario, and we don't think it's at all likely, I just have to keep saying that, but we do want to make sure that that is available at nearest to the point to the market that we can bring it. And so I know that Nora is is working on perhaps moving some stock around. Uh, I, I, I know that government and, and ourselves are all working on a plan to make sure that we have access to the fuel if the worst comes to the worst, as I say, but we don't expect that to happen. All right, uh, Peter, um, we heard in the report there from Shona that uh, we have been told, you know, to prepare for full disruption of gas. Uh, are we confident in Ireland that our supply of gas from the UK is sacrosanct, is safe, that that will be honoured? Well, there's an emergency group set up within the Department of Climate Action and Communications to monitor, essentially, the supply chain management of fuel. As was said there by Kevin, we have obviously a 90-day reserve, 85% uh, of that that reserve is held on the island of Ireland. That's a buffer, obviously. But there is a real concern that, you know, we're not reliant on the actual uh, fuel coming in here from Russia, but on the global market in terms of Europe, around 26% of its oil comes from Russia, 40% of gas. That will have an impact on price, which the government is obviously trying to re respond to in the first instance now. So that part is uncertain, and we have to monitor that very, very closely because risk or variation, as we know, in terms of our transport sector, farming, all those areas are so reliant in terms of fuel uh, for keeping them essentially taking over. Uh, but we are uh, dependent on the UK continuing to supply us with gas. Uh, are we confident in that relationship? Yeah, we're confident in that relationship. Absolutely, we are. But price is one thing that's unpredictable, Kira, and that's the big problem here, that when that market moves away from Russia in terms of a European context, it's very hard to predict what the price level will be or what the change will be, because, you know, as we were experiencing huge inflation now, when you have, you know, energy uh, uh, supply chains changing, that obviously drives inflation up, and that is a huge challenge for government as it, as it is trying to respond to. All right, my thanks to Peter Burke and uh, Kevin McPartland. And just to make you aware, uh, Catherine Murphy from the Social Democrats was due to join us on, uh, this eve on the programme this evening, but was unable to make it in the end. Uh, after this break, uh, we will be speaking to uh, former Sinn Féin TD Violet Ann Wynne on why she left the party. You're very welcome back. Now, earlier this year, Claire TD Violet Ann Wynne resigned from Sinn Féin after what she claims was a campaign of psychological warfare. Sinn Féin told our show they previously responded to Deputy Wynne's decision to leave the party and reissued a statement from Sinn Féin Deputy Whip Denise Mitchell saying Violet Ann Wynne was a valued member of the Sinn Féin Oireachtas team and that the party had worked extremely hard over the last two years to resolve challenges at constituency level and that that work was continuing. Well, I met Deputy Wynne in Clare and I began by asking her about her experience in the Sinn Féin party. 
In your statements uh, that you published after you resigned from Sinn Féin, you said that it was psychological warfare, that that's what you were subjected to. That's quite a big accusation to make. So what exactly are you basing that on? Yeah, well, I suppose the reason why I, I really left was because um, of the interactions that I was having with the organisation and the administration of the party. So, for example, like we have structures within the local end of the party um, and we didn't, like Claire was missing the main structure, which is called the Covorla Cantor. And this was something that they said that they would look into setting up and it's, uh, I suppose, very important for communication and for collaboration within the local end of the party for raising issues from each area. And excuses were constantly coming up as to why that uh, significant structure was not in place. Um, but within time, you could see that, you know, none of those excuses were really holding up. And you felt this was deliberate? I do, yeah. Um, you know, I would have felt that there was issues there um, with, let's say, people who would have prominent positions. Um, and whenever I would, you know, meet with them, I'd be told that there is no issues whatsoever. But then, you know, in Zoom meetings, for example, then, you know, if they thought I wasn't there, um, they had an awful lot to say about myself or um, the setup of my office, for example. I suppose I, I caught it in, in action at one of those Zoom meetings where, um, you know, a member thought that I wasn't present in the meeting and it really, I suppose, came through. I suppose that it was a personal attack rather than just, you know, these are, are things that we think that are important. I'm told that five to six peak parliamentary questions were, were apt, which obviously they are not. Um, and, you know, if, if I wanted information or research to be done, you know, Google was, was a great way to, to get that information. So, you know, it did become obvious that even collaboration from staff members was becoming an issue as well. It was also in actions that were taken, like, for example, you know, commemorations were done online um, because of COVID. I, I had difficulties even getting access to membership lists, you know, just so that I could be in contact with the members. Um, so I very much felt like as if I was being prevented in, in every way from being the TD, but also from being part of the party. And you also felt that other things were dictated to you, including staff, for example. Oh, yes. That was um, probably the most difficult situation that I had ever experienced with the party. And it wasn't something that I had ever foreseen. Uh, Sinn Féin handled, I suppose, the advertisement, which was, was great. It was a great help, especially to a new TD, um, to get in, in what I seen it as support. But it ended up being a method of control, as far as I could see. We felt that there was um, a major agenda there of, of getting control, um, of getting control control over, I suppose, my work and, and myself. I mean, in, in the end, it became very difficult to even, I suppose, give direction. You know, that it, I suppose that did affect me. So, um, so when I spoke about psychological warfare, it, it very much so was. I mean, I was left um, an awful lot of the time wondering, you know, why am I hearing something different now? So any understanding away? No, I've, I've made quite a lot of assumptions, <laughs> I suppose, based on everyone's behaviour. Um, and what are those assumptions? That it was personal, anyway, that's 100%. Um, I mean, I think that I wasn't somebody who could be easily controlled, maybe, would be the, another way uh, to explain it, because, uh, you know, there was various points where I didn't do what I was told, or I didn't fall into line, I suppose. Um, so I know that that was an issue. Uh, 
that had been mentioned before. Um, and instead of, I suppose, having, you know, adult conversations, uh, there was a bit of name calling that um, went along with that, you know. Um, calling you names? Oh, yes. Like what? Um, it, you know, just saying that I was um, mad in the head altogether. How is this making you feel, Violet Ann? Well, isolated was one thing. Um, and I had voiced that. It's not a case of, you know, that I was sitting in, in the corner and not saying anything. You know, there, basically, I suppose I was being led to believe that what I was seeing and what I was feeling was very much my own perspective. And it wasn't something that, um, that was their experience. Um, but then when you're not able to get, uh, I suppose, collaboration and information, I suppose, then you, you are left wondering, well, what's going on here? Could it just be, Violet on a clash of personalities? I don't think so. Um, I definitely don't believe so. I mean, I, I've worked well with, with others all of my life. Um, I was a member of the Reserve Defence Forces for a number of years. I've never had issues like this in any other aspect of my life. Um, I can honestly say that. Um, you know, so I, I can't see... When they mention difficulties, I don't know exactly what they're referring to um, in speaking about myself. And I think, you know, there obviously is an agenda there on their behalf to, to, to I suppose, point uh, people's thoughts in the direction of myself. There must be something wrong with her as an individual or, or something to that effect. Um, and, you know, it has, it has left me feeling like I should defend myself or I need to defend myself in some way to almost prove that that isn't the case. Um, but but you, didn't, do, you feel you didn't contribute to this? I can't see how. I mean, I'm a very open person um, and I'm very, like, honest as well. And I, I've, I've sought meetings with the right people. I've done what I could from my end to try and, I suppose, make things more positive. And Sinn Féin, for their part, Violet Ann, in a statement, said that they wish you well, that there were issues within the constituency and they were working through these and hoping to work through them further when you return from your maternity leave. Do you accept this? I had seen that, yeah. And... Um, I suppose you could say that, you know, there was meetings being held and that there was the right conversations uh, with myself being had. Um, but as for action, there, there was none because it was quite concerning. And as I was explaining to the party, you know, forget it about it being about myself for a moment. Uh, what about anybody else coming into the party? Um, are, are they going to have the same experience? Is this something that is quite normalised within um, the party that you know issues can just be there and not be addressed and not, um, uh, yeah, just not be addressed? I suppose. And what was said to you about becoming pregnant with your child? Yeah. Um, so I had, I suppose, you know, informed um, a number of people, and you know, most of them conversation had gone reasonably well. Uh, I was quite nervous actually at um, informing the party uh, because I suppose all of the difficulties that I felt I was experiencing up until that point, you know, I, I just, I was concerned at what the reaction was going to be. Uh, I was met with, well, I had a member come into the office and when they were leaving, I, you know, just pulled them aside and said, um, just to let you know that I'm actually pregnant. And they responded that you're an effing idiot. And, I even, you know, reacted straight away. She reiterated it again, you're in Ephenesia. And I was like, okay, thanks. And that was the end of the conversation she had left. So yeah, I was just really taken aback by that. that Do you reaction. still believe in the party? Do you still believe in Sinn Féin? Do you think they are a suitable party for government? 
no. I had for so long believed in the party um, and I would constantly put a positive spin on uh, the difficulties I was having. I can't say that my treatment is something that I would want for anybody else. Um, and I know that, you know, it, there, are, there, are, there are issues with, I suppose, control would be the first thing, um, which is not good because, you know, when you have your own mind and you want to, I suppose, have your own opinions on things, um, you don't want to feel like you're, you're, you're being restricted. Um, and, and that's very much the feeling, I suppose, within the party. You also said in that statement, uh, Violet Ann, that you had baggage and that you brought that baggage to the attention of the party. What is that baggage? What are you referring to? Um, well, I suppose it, it came out very, very quickly after me being elected. So I had issues with um, the housing uh, organisation that I had moved to County Clare with. Um, so I knew that there was going to be, I suppose, media coverage on that. And I, you know, that had been relayed to the party as well, to the head of the organisation. So, you know, it, I had been as transparent as I could be. So I, I, I can't see how... Um, you know, that the party would have seen it negatively after me getting elected when they hadn't prior to me being elected. I mean, it was common knowledge, even if I hadn't have been transparent, but I was. Um, and then also because of um, my partner who uses medicinal cannabis for his um, epilepsy. So, um, I mean, I suppose that in itself, I suppose, is, is um, not the norm. I, I would say. And there's been kind of criminal charges off the back of his use of cannabis and you brought that to their attention. Oh yes, they knew. Um, and yeah, I'd been very open about that and were informed quite emphatically that the party had no issue um, with his use of medicinal cannabis. And, you know, if they could support us in any way, they would. Um, but again, it was very much like my, all of my other experiences where, you know, face to face, you are hearing what I suppose you would want to hear. Um, but, uh, you know, it wasn't something that you could rely on. Uh, thank you for your time. Well, that's it from us. Claire Brock will be here tomorrow night. Good night and take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.